Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History. I'm your host, Professor Natalie Harpin. Today I wanted to talk about something that I read in the LA Times, and it is titled Mexico's New Racial Reckoning, A Movement Protests Colorism and White Privilege. So it's detailing how in Mexico City there are people who are calling out the blatant colorism that is rooted in racism against darker-skinned national citizens of Mexico. So these would be the indigenous descended people and the black descended people, racially speaking. So with that being said, I thought about how it has related to the previous three parts that I've done about the diaspora and about the hegemonic realities of you know right now that are rooted in the colonial period so the colonial period meaning for the americas this would be the 15th century through the 19th century and what i thought was interesting was that the article itself i kind of found problematic because it i feel like it really took it's okay let me just say it like this it's calling out the racism it's focusing on the indigenous descended people, which makes sense because, you know, population wise, it does also mention that the black descended Mexicans are people, you know, who are descended from the enslaved who were enslaved in Mexico. But they really do take personhood away from the black population. So what I mean by that is that in the article, it's written by someone named Kate Linthicum. And she refers to the Spanish people, as she says, or I should say, as they say, um, the indigenous people and the black slaves. And so I've talked before about how we need to be intentional about not just referring to this population of people as simply slaves, but as people who are enslaved. Now, when we talk, when we think about this, it's also, again, you remember from previous episodes of the podcast, but if you're new, hi, you can go back and listen to the other three episodes that I've done about the legacy of colonialism and racism within Latin America. But it's not a new concept for us to think about these enslaved people. And we know that within mainland Mexico, for example, they received many more enslaved Africans than the United States did those descendants of those people are still there in Mexico today, but they were only counted on the census as of 2015. So it would be hard for them to really, I would say, to really gauge how many people would even classify themselves as Afro-Mexican or as Black within Mexico, because there are so many people, I think, that have just been washed over. And the article does mention the fact that this concept of a national group, in this case being Mexico as a nation and a national group, really touted this idea that everybody there was the mixed result of indigenous and Europeans which again completely is completely false. There are people who aren't mixed in in that equation at all. And like I said that completely ignores the fact that there was a much bigger African population within Mexico than even there was an African population within what became the United States.
Now, the issue that they're facing in Mexico City is a lot of blatant colorism, and it stems from this restaurant. And apparently, it's an upscale steakhouse, and the employees of the steakhouse have called the restaurant out because they've noticed a trend where the very fair-complected people, like the white-descended Mexicans, are seated in the best tables and the darker skinned Mexicans are, you know, sat elsewhere. So probably out of sight or just not considered, you know, prime locations or just the best tables. And of course the restaurant is denying this and they're saying that that's not the case, but even they I mean, they've even had presidents of Mexico who have called this out, right? Some of you know from previous podcasts that the second president of Mexico was Vicente Guerrero, who's an Afro Mexican, and everybody knew that he was black descended. And he was really instrumental for calling out the racism and abolishing slavery within the country. But like I was saying, the modern day things that we see here are rooted in those in these colonial time periods. So the language that's being used around the people who were there, calling them disparaging names, the treatment of these people, like in this case, like these restaurants, which of course it's going to spill over into other things too. The article focuses on a restaurant, but this is going to have very real effects on people who aren't going to be able to get certain types of employment. There was an ad that it calls out for an airline company. I'm not going to call them out because you can read the article yourself. But And for the casting call, they said that they didn't. It was a Mexican airline, and they said they didn't want any darker-skinned people. So, again, the representation of who's from these countries. And a lot of you probably never learned about the Afro-Mexican presence and certainly haven't learned much about the indigenous-descended Mexican presence and the unique obstacles that these communities face because they have been pushed out systemically, which is rooted in racism, um, it's more to the point that it's a problem. And I think that it's a good thing that these employees have called it out because, of course, a lot of times when people are patrons of a place and make these comments, especially if they are dark-skinned people, or in this case, you know, black or indigenous-descended Mexican citizens, they might be just gaslit into thinking that it's not a problem or that it is not really something that they should worry about or it's not a national issue. And it is. And this is a trend of, in a lot of these Latin American countries where they'll just say, oh, we have, you know, we have a racial harmony because Brazil did the same thing. So they know that they have darker skinned people who are descendants of indigenous people or Africans, but they sort of just gloss it over as being, oh, well, you know, we all get along. We're all national citizens. We're all the same people. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Nationally speaking, sure, they're the same people, right? Because they're all citizens of the same nation, despite having different races, just like here in the United States. However, in these Latin American countries, they still do tend to have racist practices that they can be outright with, even legally, like on paper, be outright with. Whereas in the United places like the United States, we have laws that prohibit it. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen here, obviously, because what would I talk about on the podcast if it didn't happen anymore? But um it still does happen here, but it's just, you know, they can't put it in the casting call that they don't want dark skinned people. Like you can be sued for that. Um, you, they can't put in a job announcement that they're not accepting 
you know, people with darker skin. We have a whole Equal Employment Opportunity Act that prevents them from doing that. You can't outwardly, in writing, discriminate against other, you know, populations. So be that racial populations, other abled or disabled populations, gender populations. You can't in the in a job announcement say that, you know, certain people can't apply. But these things are often still allowed and considered legal in many Latin American countries. And some of the pushback of people within the country, I think it's interesting. The article goes on to quote somebody who says, they're just looking to tear us apart. It says a light skinned anchor with the news channel, which I'm not going to name, but it's in the article said during a round table about diversity in the media. This person said, how can they talk about not discriminating when that's what they're doing? A guest responded, there are redheaded Mexicans, there are whites. Now they won't let them be in movies because they don't represent Mexico? To me, that's discrimination. And this is the same crap that we see perpetuated in the United States, where you have people, when when the tide is finally going toward another group of people, right? Like the water is finally going to be used to water other plants that have not gotten enough water. Water, then all of a sudden it's like, oh well, this is this is discrimination. You can't do this to us because we're we're rep- you know we're here too. And it's like, yes, you are, and you have always been pedestalized and uplifted within those communities. White-skinned Mexicans are not having a problem getting jobs. White-skinned or red-headed Mexicans are not having an issue with not being represented positively in their media. That's the whole point. And it's unfortunate, but it's not unique that when these things, when these conversations are happening surrounding colorism and racism as a byproduct of colorism, that people try to spin the narrative and say, oh, no, well, if you... If you don't give these white people these same opportunities and the same disproportionate representation that they've always had, well, now we're discriminating against them. No, you're not. It's someone else's turn to eat now. And uh, many people claim that they want equality, but they don't want to lose resources. And we've talked about that on this podcast before. And there are many people who say that they want equality, that they want equity, that they want abolition, that they want, you know, racial equality, gender equality. They want, you know, rights for trans groups or disabled groups. They want these things for these people, but they're not willing to give up especially the people who, again, have disproportionately benefited from these same systems that now have to include others, now all of a sudden the one group feels like they're being discriminated against. And it's like, no, that's not the definition of discrimination, right? Um, Something else I thought that was interesting in the article is that part of this whole creating of this, everyone's just a mix of indigenous and Spanish, right? Like we're half and half in addition to erasing the people again, who aren't mixed and who are black or, you know, or who at least in this case are not indigenous and Spanish. Um, you have people who are creating this notion that it's somehow divisive to have these conversations. Because again, these countries in Latin America in general for so long have not only like created this myth, but promoted it in their media, in their films, in their broadcasting to other nations that a lot of people just bought into it and believed it. And because the indigenous populations are sort of out of sight, out of mind in these major cities and these economic hubs, it's easy to just ignore them and pretend like they're not really there. 
or if you're traveling, like even if I was going to travel to Mexico City, right, it would probably be, and who knows, I've never been to Mexico City, I've always wanted to go as a side note, but it would be interesting to see how many other like people who are my color that I see or how many people who are identifiably like monoracially native indigenous people that I would see. And again, what are they doing? in these centers are they just the janitors or the cooks or the maids or are they also the managers and the hotel owners or the restaurant owners or managers like are they in positions of authority and power or are they just kept at the bottom in these social classes and in 1994 the at the un they had a committee on the elimination of racial discrimination um the representative from Mexico came out, this was in, like I said, in 94, came out and said that, that they didn't have a racial discrimination problem in Mexico, that it just didn't exist. And this is what I mean when I say that the, the issues of pushing people out and keeping them from having any access to the microphone or to the media or to equitable representation is that it was easy for people to buy into that, of course, because like they're in their country. So you would believe the people who are representatives of that country. And if you don't ever see any examples of discrimination within the country, then it's easy to just buy into, oh, well, I guess they figured it out, right? Whereas in the United States, especially because of how much influence we have in this country on the media, be it movies, news, social media, etc., it's easy for people to have examples of blatant racism that has happened in the United States. The article goes on to say that there was a 2017 study that was published by the Latin American Public Opinion Project at Vanderbilt University, and it said that it found that people with the whitest skin in Mexico had completed 11 years of schooling on average, and with people among, well, among people with browner skin, they had only on average completed five years of school. It also says that wealth is correlated to skin color. Darker skinned people earn 52% less than white um, skinned people who have the same, you know, educations or the same job, at least that there is people still use the term Indian, like, you know, capital I, like not from India, but just as, as an, um, a pejorative against people who are indigenous and indigenous and native descended people from Mexico and discourage their children, which, you know, any of us who's studied Latin American history, past or present knows that even today, a lot of people from these nations still discourage their children and their family members from marrying and having children with darker skinned citizens of the same nation. So they want them to partner with very, very fair complected people or light complected people so that way they won't have darker skinned children. And like I mentioned jobs before, like within Mexico City, but it is a fact and the article goes on to cite examples where indigenous and black descended people, again, the darker skinned members of that nation are routinely given jobs where they're having to cook or clean or be in some sort of domestic service capacity. They don't have the same opportunities to get jobs that would be a little seen as higher in society or having access to better paying jobs. So the number that it lists specifically is that there were 127 million people within Mexico that self-identify as black. Now, I've gotten into, like, I haven't gotten into anything, sorry, but I've had conversations with students in my class about being intentional about nationalism. And again, the difference, you know, from previous episodes about the diasporic um 
effects of colonialism in Latin America, that nationalism, race, and ethnicity are three different things. They have three different definitions. So they're not the same thing, but they're often conflated. So I just want to reiterate again, if you haven't heard those other episodes, in case you're new to the series that I'm doing about this, that your race is defined as your phenotypic expression that is commonly found, like your physical characteristics that are commonly found within a group of people. Your ethnicity is going to be a cultural tie and your nationality is going to be the country that you're born. So when I am saying black, I mean black Mexicans or what we would consider them to be Afro-Mexicans or indigenous descended Mexicans, right? Their version of their natives, native Mexicans, whereas here we would call them like Native Americans. So sometimes that's difficult for people because again, they didn't learn about these unique experiences of these people who are indigenous and black descended and who are not a part of that. What is, you know, called mestizaje, which is the mixing in that country specifically, but in Latin America in general, not everybody's mixed. There was a lot of mixing for a very long time. It was legal for a very long time, whereas in the U.S. and other English-descended colonies, it was made illegal, so it didn't happen quite as much, which explains like the differences with how we classify mixed-race people in English-descended colonies like the U.S. or Jamaica, Barbados, Bermuda, and how they do in French, Portuguese, or Spanish colonies in the New World. Like We're talking about one Spanish-descended colony, which was, you know, was Mexico, but I don't want you to think that these are black people who are from the U.S. or who are from the continent of Africa. Like, these are black Mexicans. They've always been in Mexico. Their nationality is Mexican. They were born there. They've been there for many generations back through the colonial times. Just like for me, like, I'm an African-American or a black American, and my family's been in America for a very long time, right? So race and nationality are two different things. There could be a girl who looks just like me, who was born in Mexico, and whose family's been in Mexico for several centuries. Like, my family's been in America for several centuries. She's an Afro-Mexican. I am not. I'm an African-American. So I just wanted to be very intentional and just go over that real quick in case you haven't heard the previous podcasts where I do go more into that. The article does also mention the pigmentocracy that we've talked about in the previous episodes of this and about how society was created with caste in mind and with skin color in mind. So Europeans, in this case, Spanish people who were born in Spain were at the top of the racial ordering. The people who were Spanish 100% but were born in the New World, they would have been called the Criollos or Creoles as we would call it in English. And then beneath them would have been the people who were, you know, three-fourths white and one-fourth native or half native and half white or, you know, different they call it mathematical, oh, what do they call it? Genealogical mathematics. That's what Anne Twinham calls it in her book, um, Purchasing Whiteness, which is a great book, um, like I said, by Anne Twinham. But the indigenous descended people and the African descended people who were not mixed were at the very bottom of that. So the indigenous people were actually above the black people because colonially speaking, the indigenous people in the eyes of some of the priests who were sent to the New World considered them to be more pure than even some Europeans, and they were definitely given more sympathy and um, were never formally categorized as slaves. So the bottom of that would be, of course, the 
black descended slaves, the African slaves within these Latin American countries. And consequently, even today, their families are still the bottoms of those society. They've often been erased. Even when they have mixed in, they often still carry like, again, the black racial um, features. So when I'm thinking about hair texture, um, very, you know, like type four hair that we would call it very like curly, coily, kinky hair that they have. Some of them have very, very dark skin that they have, you know, African features with regard to like their nose and lips and things like that. They're very clearly black descended, um, even if they don't look the way you would think like a monoracial black person does. But there are monoracially black people who are Mexican citizens and I think we've talked about this before, but they often get accused of being defectors from Cuba because again, like in the, even in the eyes of the Mexican government, they don't, they don't conceive of the idea that there are any like full black people in Mexico or identifiably black people who are citizens of Mexico. And that's the problem with buying into this idea that everybody there is just some, you know, super mixed race of indigenous and um, Europeans. And that couldn't be further from the truth. But because of that, that's why, again, we don't see the representation. So I've talked before about how Yelitsa Aparicio, who is a Mexican actress of indigenous racial descent, and how she was on the cover of Vogue Mexico. And, you know, there were a lot of disparaging things that were said about her and her look, because in her society in Mexico, she would still be considered an ugly woman because she's dark skinned, because she's a native, or as they would call her an Indian, right, as the article says, she's just automatically seen as ugly. And that's how it is for black women within Latin America and native women throughout Latin America. They're just automatically just seen as ugly because of their skin color, period. And that's why when I talked in the last episode of the um, diaspora part three, I was saying that that's why these things aren't just preferences, right? So it's very disingenuous when people make it seem like they have a preference for lighter skinned people. Like, no, these are colonially rooted things and perpetuated by the media, education, all the positive representations you see about your country, about what's considered beautiful and what's considered, you know, attractive. All of that is tied into colorism. And that, again, has affected how these people are able to not get roles. I might as well call it the airline because, like, they obviously were very wrong for what they did, but it was Aeromexico. So Aeromexico is the airline that I mentioned earlier that, did, you know, said we don't want any dark-skinned people at this casting call for this ad. And that was only in 2013. So it wasn't very long ago. Like, all of you remember 2013. So um, it has effects on the media campaigns. Now, I think it's interesting that for soccer and for sports, it's not quite the same. And it doesn't tend to be the same types of colorism among the men as it does the women, but it still happens collectively. And that's why we're talking about it right now. But the reason why, back to Yelitsa Aparicio, that it was such a revolutionary thing that she was on the cover of Vogue Mexico was because she was on the cover and she wasn't being depicted as a maid. She wasn't sharing the cover with anybody. She looked absolutely beautiful. But again, her likeness is not considered beautiful in her country, even in the year that it happened. And I want to say that was like in 2015. I want to say it was around then, but you could Google it like Yelitsa Aparicio Vogue magazine and it would come up. Another thing is in 2018, the Mexican president Lopez Obrador, you know, his youngest son 
was called Chocolate Flan by a popular comedian, it says. So this is the president's son who's a darker-skinned person, or it's considered dark-skinned for that country. And comedians are making fun of him because of his skin color. And again, these things don't happen as much to the lighter-skinned people. And even when they do happen, it hasn't to the light-skinned people. It doesn't have any effect on how they're perceived. It doesn't stop them from being able to get jobs. It doesn't stop them from being able to get marriage proposals or... um, doesn't stop them from, you know, being accepted by a partner's family because they're light-skinned. So any jokes made about light-skinned people is nowhere near as detrimental as the jokes made about darker-skinned people. And one of the last things that happens in the article is that it does mention a woman who is an actress, and she says that where she was from, like, in her... Um, where the childhood, you know, her neighborhood that she grew up in and the area geographically that she grew up in, she was considered somebody with um, lighter skin. But when she started working in the film industry and, you know, trying to get acting roles, that she was clearly one of the darker people amongst those peers. And she was saying how, her name is Maya Zapata, so she was saying how she was having conversations with the people who she was with on some of these like trips that they would go on as groups. And these people were telling her, oh, I don't see color, I don't see color. And, you know, for her, she couldn't help but see it, right? Because the people who look like her are the ones who are the maids. The people who look like her are the ones who are um, in the service roles. And again, back to that domestic capacity, these are the only jobs that they're allowed to get. So even though she was among people who she thought were her peers, like saying that you don't see color is very hurtful to people who, again, are constantly reminded of their color, be it because of the society that they find themselves in, where maybe they have a little bit of privilege, but notice that everyone else who looks like them is not enjoying that privilege, or the aggressions that they receive because of their color. So missing out on opportunities in, you know, in this case for acting work, being passed up for opportunities, not being able to go to casting calls, having people question your national identity or the authenticity of your national identity. And I just want to take this time to mention again that this is one of the things I've always thought was very problematic years ago. And I actually wrote something about it and I never turned it in. Like sometimes I just write stuff up and I don't submit it anywhere. I just need to like get it off my chest, so to speak. But I wrote something and it was about how when Lupita Nyong'o identified as an Afro, no, she identified as a Nigerian Mexican. People within Mexico like flipped out because as far as they were concerned, she's not Mexican. And I was saying that that's rooted in that colonial racism, right? That this identifiably black woman, monoracially black woman cannot possibly be from our country. We can't acknowledge that she's one of our national citizens, even though she is. She was born in Mexico. Her parents are from Nigeria. So how is she not a Mexican, right? And that's why I was saying before that when we conflate nationality and race or nationality and ethnicity, it makes people say, well, why, you know, no, she's not Mexican. Look at her. She's black. It's like, yeah, but black is a race. Mexico is a nation. So Mexican is a nationality. It's a national group of people with many different races within it. And 
She speaks fluent Spanish because, of course, like she grew up there as a kid. Her first name is Lupita. Like her parents were influenced by the culture that they were around. And again, there are plenty of people who you and I know who are just as American as anybody else, whether they have, you know, anglicized names or whether they have in um, Mexican names or Spanish descended names, etc., indigenous names. And they're no like they're they would think it was completely unconscionable if someone questioned their Americanness because of their cultural ties to uh, another country, like their parents' ties to Mexico. They would say, that doesn't not make me an American citizen because my parents are from another country, right? Um, Same thing with Lupita, okay? So being somebody who grew up in that culture, born in that nation, and culture meaning ethnic group, like Latinx ethnic group, being born in Mexico, she is a Mexican citizen. She's not a U.S. citizen. So she's not an African American. So that's, I wanted to talk about that too. And the, I thought the article, like I said, was, was pretty good. I think that there are some things with the language that were kind of just irked me because, I mean, I'm reading it as a black woman. I'm reading it as a black historian. I'm reading it about as I'm reading about it as a diasporic historian. So as someone who is invested and interested in the black experience throughout this hemisphere, and I found some of the language that they used, even though they're calling out anti-blackness, they're still kind of perpetuating it with the language again by not referring to them as people, but simply as slaves and other things that I mentioned. But overall, I think it was a great article. And I think that it did a really good job of expressing and highlighting some of the things that are current events within Mexico and explaining how it relates to, like it mentioned, what just happened in Los Angeles. So in LA, there was just that the city council members who had been recorded. I don't know by who, I don't know if that came out yet, but they were recorded and they were talking a lot of trash and despair using disparaging terms and words about again indigenous descended mexicans in in certain cases or like the one i forgot exactly who this person was but he's white and his son is black so i don't know if it's a mixed race child or if it's an adopted child but it doesn't really matter it's his child and they were talking badly about the child who's two years old because he was black. Some of the things that they said, I mean, I mentioned that they called the little boy a monkey, that they were insinuating that he needed to be taught a lesson, that he wasn't tough enough or something like that. Like that, you know, that he might, I think the implication was that he might um, benefit from, you know, being beaten up. And again, this is a child, but we know that there's a history of not extending childhood to black children. That's a whole nother podcast episode. But also the things they were saying about the indigenous descended people, they were calling them dark, like little dark, ugly people. And I think they referred to one of the people as like, you know, like dark, ugly little Ahuacans, like people from Ahuaca, which is in Mexico. It's one of the... I guess one of the states within Mexico and that's very very problematic right but again it's that's in America but it just shows you what the modern day connections are and that the people who were elected to represent these people what they say about the people who they're sworn to serve and they can't serve them. And the last thing that's come out, at least at the time of me recording this, is that some of the council members aren't stepping down. They refuse to step down. 
and people are calling for their resignation. Now, I wonder personally if they would still be calling for their resignation if they had only disparaged the black kid. Again, I'm not disillusioned by any notions of people of color solidarity. I think those are individual instances, but it doesn't tend to be collective um, to the like statewide or nationwide. But um, the people are still calling for them to step down, and they should. The things that they said about these indigenous and the black people is completely ridiculous. They have no role in serving the communities that they were elected for. And it's also very important because, you know, it's not just about what they said. It's about how that's going to affect the policies that they do or don't vote for, that they do or don't advocate for, for the communities that they're supposed to serve. And when we're talking about the redistricting that happens all the time within politics and within communities, we talk about allocations of resources when it comes to education or, I mean, I've talked before about how, you know, the disparities among, like, where there are trees planted and how that keeps people cool, especially with global warming. All these things are decided at the city governance level. And if these people feel these ways about the most affected people, again, indigenous and black people within L.A. and within these districts, if they feel that those people aren't equal to them or that they're not worthy of protection or, or that they're not even important enough to show respect to for their culture or their racial group, they're not going to do the right thing by those people. And I think it, you know, it's just, you know, sorry, Dad, I think it just shows like, you know, unmitigated gall that these people would, that some of these people refuse to step down, that they're saying, nope, you know, like, I'm not leaving. So we'll see how it goes. I don't know if anyone can force them to. I'm sort of waiting to see what Gavin Newsom, if he's going to get involved in this at all, because, you know, he's a governor who's really ran on racial equality and racial equity. And a lot of the work that he's done in the last three years has been focused on that. So we'll see if, you know, if he calls for them to step down. I know Joe Biden has and he's the president. But I don't know if federally, you know what I mean, if that's something that the president can enforce or if that's something the governor has to, if it's like a state's rights, <laughs> state's rights, right? I've gone off about that, but maybe I'll make another podcast about that later. But um, I don't know if that's something that the state has to decide, which, of course, that decision would be left in the hands of Governor Newsom. So I'm going to sign off for today, but thank you as always for listening. I really appreciate you all listening, and I know that the topic is sensitive and it's very important. And I know this one was more international news, but you know, it's very has very real ramifications and effects on the American populations of people who are from those nations, because, like I said, hemispheric wide, diaspora wide, these are common occurrences in all of the countries in this hemisphere you know, including the United States. So I hope you all have a great rest of your day or evening and I'll see you on the next episode. Bye.